Well, hello everybody, good morning, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, special welcome if you're new or just visiting with us this morning. We're always so glad that you can check us out um, either online or in person. So my name is Julie, I'm one of the pastors here, and um, if you are just joining us for the first time, we are going through a series where we're kind of asking questions about the basic building blocks of the Christian faith. We're kind of looking at them and saying, let's just not take these things for granted, um, but let's actually think about what we believe in this. Uh, as Joel mentioned earlier, we know a lot of people are asking questions right now, and so we want to do the same. We want to create a space where we can do that um, and just spend some time looking at the basic things about our faith. So if you do have questions, as always in this sermon series, at any point throughout the message, feel free to ask it online. Um, our website is up on the screen behind me, uh, redcitychurch.org. Or, um, yeah, if you go to, the, go to the website, you might have done it through the connection card earlier. So if you scan the QR code, you'll bring you to the same place. But on the main homepage, you can ask any questions you have there. Um, and we will try to answer a couple of them after the message. We probably will not get to all of them if the trend continues in terms of how many questions you all are submitting, which is great. Um, and if we don't get to all of them, we will try to put together a video and put it up online so that you can hear kind of answers to some of the questions. If you're like, hey, my question didn't get responded to, um, we'd love to do that later. And as always, we like to call it Q&R. I keep saying answers, but really, well, I don't have all the answers. I have very few answers. So um, calling it question and response. So I will do my best to respond to these things. Um, but we know that I'm just human too. I don't have all the answers either. Uh, especially on the topic today. So today we are talking about creation, um, which is a big topic. There's a lot of different views around this topic, uh, and my goal today is not to persuade you to any particular view of creation. If you grew up um, in the church, you might have heard a lot of different variations on this. If you grew up outside of the church, you've also probably heard different theories on this. Um, and so I'm not going to try to persuade you to any particular one, because I think there's a variety of beliefs and ways to think about creation that you can hold and still worship Jesus. What I want to do today uh, is really look at what the creation text tells us about who God is, who he is, and who he's made us to be as a result of that. And I think this is something we should do every time we come to scripture, right? I think when we go to scripture, sometimes we're like, okay, I'm going to read my Bible. I just want a quick, like, pick me up, or uh, I just want a quick answer to this question I have. But really, the Bible is a story about who God is and and who he's made us to be and his relationship with us uh, in, as part of that. So as we look at this, we're going to look at who God is. Um, and yet, because this is a series where we're trying to answer some questions and look at some questions and, and think through them, I'm going to do my best to respond to several of the common questions that I think come up with creation. Uh, and I'm sure that you guys will all still have more questions because this is one of those topics that is just, uh, there's a lot there. And there's a lot of different directions that you could go, right? Because creation is the starting point of the whole Bible, of all of Scripture, of what it tells us about who God is. So, you know, talking about creation, you could really branch off into tons of different directions, tons of themes, tons of threads that carry out through Scripture and weave in and out of all the different stories. Um, but I only have so much time this morning. So if you, like I said, if you have more questions, you can ask them. But we're going to do our best to kind of talk through some of the common ones that I think come up. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Genesis 1. 
Father, we do believe that you are the creator God, and we worship you for that. We pray that as we look at the creation story today, you would help us to see more of who you are and more of who you've created us to be as a result. Please speak to us from your word the same way that you spoke the world into existence. We honor you and we praise you. Amen. All right. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So just that first sentence, I'm actually going to say it's a little bit simpler than it sounds. Literally what it's saying, God created the heavens. It's just saying God created the skies and God created the earth, the land. So God created the skies and the land, the two things that the people knew and understood. So God is creator. And as we keep going, in verse 2, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So, like I said, I'm going to do my best to answer some of the common questions about creation. But there's one question that I want us to ask, whether it's on your mind or not. Uh, it's the question that I think is really important when we come to the creation story, especially with any and all of the baggage we might have around this topic. And that question is, what did the ancient Israelites, the people who were given this in the beginning, who were thinking about this story, what did they want answers to in their creation story? So what were they looking for in a creation story? When they were told, this is how God created the world, this is how everything started, what kind of questions were they thinking about? What did they want to know? Because we have to remember that the Bible was not written in modern time. It wasn't written in America, and it's not written as a science textbook. And this is something we should keep in mind of all of Scripture, but I think it's especially important when we look at Genesis 1. This was written in the ancient Near East, and the ancients viewed cosmology, which is just like a fancier word of saying what they believed about how things got started, very differently than our modern world views cosmology. So as we look at this text, we need to try and put ourselves into their shoes and think about how they would have received this story and what questions they had and what problems they wanted answers to. And we're going to see some of these questions like we did in verse 2. So I'm going to go back to it and take a look at it. It says, Now the earth was formless, and that word formless, actually, you know, literally some of the other definitions or other ways it's used, it says confusion, unreality, wasteland, wilderness, place of chaos, and vanity. And then it says that the earth was empty, and that word means void, waste. So when you're thinking about this, they're thinking about things are confusing, it's a wasteland, it's chaotic, uh, wilderness. And when I think about creation and when I think about those words, my mind automatically goes to space. Fun fact about me, I do not like space movies. <laughs> I'm fine with like the fantasy space movies like Star Wars or whatever, but when it comes to actual movies where they're like out in space and they're always like, stuck in space or stuck without oxygen or all these, like, it just freaks me out. <laughs> and I know I'm never going to go to space, so I don't have to worry about it, but I don't even like watching it. Because to me, space is this thing that's, like, so big, so vast, it feels like a wilderness to me, I don't understand it, and I took 
an astronomy class in college, which was, if you know me, I really should not have taken that class because I'm not a very scientific person, uh, and it was a lot of physics. But it, there's so much out there, and it's so unknown. And to me, that really, like, it stresses me out. And for the ancient Israelites, when they thought of a place that was chaotic, like, you know, the same kind of way I feel about space, they thought about the water. So they, the waters were something that they depended on, right? They needed it, but it was also so uncontrolled. They didn't know how to, how to deal with it, how to kind of harness it for their own power. And even when they did, sometimes it's still, you know, if, if there's too little water, they can't survive. And if there's too much, if there's flooding, they couldn't survive. And it was something that just felt like this big chaotic force. It provided life, but it could also destroy life. And I think as Midwesterners, sometimes we forget like the vastness and the kind of scariness or chaoticness of waters because we live in the land of 10,000 lakes. And lakes are, for the most part, the smaller ones at least, not that scary. Uh, but this past week, Joel and I uh, were on vacation. We were actually out in San Diego, and we... Um, I spent a lot of time just staring at the waves. I took this picture uh, on one of our hikes, and I, it's just crazy to me when you get out there. Like, it's so vast, and the waves are this force of chaos that comes in and crashes in and then slowly kind of comes up to land and stops. And so, so it was a great reminder for me of why, for the ancient Israelites, water was such a big deal and why it was so to them, represented this force of chaos in their life. And another thing that you need to understand about the ancient Israelites is that for them, chaoticness or chaotic waters was a picture of disorder. And for them, disorder equaled nothingness. Now, this is a concept that's so different from us and how we think of nothingness that I'm going to kind of give a bunch of examples and talk through it a little bit. Because it took me a while even to wrap my brain around this idea. So for them, disorder, if something was chaotic or not ordered or didn't have a function in a system, that to them meant nothingness. So uh, there's a, a scholar who does a lot of work on Genesis, um, John Walton. I'm going to take a lot of his examples and different things as I talk about this. Um, but they did not think about nothingness the same way that we do, right? We think if something, if nothingness is like there's no matter, right, there's nothing there, um, but they were way less interested in whether or not there was matter somewhere, but more about whether or not there was order to this thing or to the system. So the sea and the desert were kind of formless and void to them because they were not part of an ordered system. So I'm going to give a couple examples. First of all, the difference between the idea of building a house and building a home. So if I were to tell you a story of building a house, right, you would probably think of building materials, kind of one of that picture up there, right, like the, the structure, the framework, how it all fits together. I know we have a lot of really handy people here. So when I talk about building a house, you probably know what I'm, what I'm thinking about. But if I were to say, if I were to try to tell you a story about building a home, that would probably be a different picture in your mind. Right? You might think about family. You might think about identity. You might think about you know, decorations and how to organize a space and who and what is going to be in what room and in what place of the house. And 
they're both creative actions, right? Building a house is a creative action. Building a home is also a creative action. And in our modern Western way of thinking, uh, we want a house story, right? We want to know, how is it built? Tell me the story of how it was constructed. What, how, how did you get there? But the ancient Israelites, they wanted a home story. They wanted to know what's the identity? Who are these people? Why are they here? And we might say, well, you can't have a home without a house, right? Obviously, the house is more important, and it has to come first. So if you're going to tell me a creation story, it better be a house story. But again, that's a very modern Western way of thinking. And the ancient Israelites, that's not what they thought of. They might have even felt like you can't really have a house without a home. So different ways of kind of wrapping your brain around this idea. I'm going to give another example, and I apologize now, it's another superhero example. I know for a while, Joel was making a lot of them, and so we kind of said, there's got to be a more, like, a, an end to all of these superhero references, and then I was like, oh, we haven't had one in a while, I'm going to use one, and then he used one last week. So I apologize, uh, but <laughs> my example has to do with the idea of, like, origin story and identity. So... I didn't watch superhero movies until I met Joel, um, and one thing that I've kind of learned to appreciate about them is that they often tell these origin stories, right? Who is the character? Why are they doing the things that they're doing? Um, how did they become a superhero? That kind of a thing. And we recently saw the newest Marvel movie, uh, Shang-Chi. I won't try, we'll try not to spoil anything if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, it's really good, even if you aren't like immersed in all the Marvel things, you could still follow along, and I'd recommend checking it out. Um, but in this story, uh, we find the hero, Shang-Chi. He has these 10 rings. You can kind of see him in the picture. And these rings allow him to do all sorts of different superhuman-type things. Um, honestly, I don't fully even understand what all he can do, but they're really strong, um, and they can make him be awesome in fighting people and I think like kind of flying around. I don't know. It was a little confusing for me. Um, but the thing about these Marvel movies, if you've seen any of them, right, even if all the way back to any of the old ones, if you've seen them, the origin story is a lot less about how the superpowers work, right? Like I just said, I don't even fully understand what these 10 rings do. Um, and they, in the movie, they don't tell you, like, where did they come from? What are they made of? How do they work? They don't tell you any of that kind of stuff. The origin story is about who this guy is, how he becomes a superhero, who his family is, what his identity is, and what motivates him, right? Um, spoiler alert, every Marvel movie, it's daddy issues. I mean, like, literally every story, it's the same. Uh, I don't know why it's always that particular thing. Maybe the writer of the comics has some unresolved family issues. But uh, it tells you about what his motivation is, right? Why he is who he is and why he does the things that he does. So it's more about a story about giving identity rather than telling you how these superpowers work. And that's the type of story that the ancient Israelites were looking for, right? They were looking for a story of identity, of why they are who they are, who is God, why is he the way that he is, uh, less about how it all works, what's the science of it, what happened here. And the creation story in Genesis is all about giving order, right? As I was talking about earlier, order in a system and in a function, having a function in a system was super important to them. 
So it's about giving meaning, giving identity. Uh, and it's not just an identity story for the Israelites, but really more about who God is who, um, and who that makes them because of their relationship to God. And I think you know, one of the questions that comes out of reframing this idea uh, of how we look at the creation story is, well, then what about science, right? So if, if they weren't worried about science, um, you know, they didn't know a lot of the stuff we know now, that's fine, but how does it fit in? And I'm going to give you a short answer, and I'm probably going to get more questions about this, uh, but I'm going to borrow again from this uh, Genesis scholar, John Walton, and he, he talks about how science and the way it works is concerned with mechanism, right? How does something work? want to understand the mechanics of it. And the idea of agency, the idea of like purpose and personal intention within this kind of mechanical process or the idea of who and why uh, is really more of what the Bible is concerned about. And science doesn't say much about agency, right? Science isn't there to tell you uh, who somebody is or why they do things that they do or why um, they're involved in this mechanical process. It just tells you kind of the facts about how it works. And agency doesn't really say much about mechanism, right? Agency telling you who or why, uh, it doesn't really tell you the how. And the Bible is a lot more about agency than it is about mechanism. And it's, it's sort of an error in category if you're going to try to apply one to the other. So to try and say, the Bible needs to tell me these scientific things and how it works is sort of an error in method, right? Like that's not what the Bible is for, and so it's not going to give you the answers that you're looking for. And that doesn't mean that it's not compatible with science. Actually, I think when you switch your framework to thinking about the Bible being not about mechanism, it actually gives you more room for the science to be compatible with it. Because the Bible isn't trying to tell you how the science works behind creation. And so now that we you know, have some information or learn more about science or whatever view you hold about the scientific part of creation can potentially be compatible with what the scripture is saying because it's not trying to tell you science. It's not, so they don't have to compete. They can actually be compatible. Okay. I know I'm probably going to get more questions about that, but we're going to keep going. Um, and I'm going to keep reading a little bit more through the Genesis 1 passage, and I want you just to listen to the references about water, right? So if we're talking about their big question was, how do I deal with this chaotic force of water in our lives? Um, I want you to listen to that as I read through it. So starting in verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters and called them seas, and God saw that it was good. So you can see that if the Israelites' question was about how do we order this system, how do we make sense of these chaotic waters, the creation story tells how God did that, right? It creates, puts all of these things, these chaotic forces, into a system that the Israelites can uh, be a part of and understand. And 
again, another question that you might be thinking is, how do we know that this is what the Israelites wanted, right? How do we know that they wanted a home story or an identity story instead of what we may typically think of as like, you know, the house story or how it was built? Uh, and one thing that we know is we can look at other, other nations around Israel also had creation stories of their own. So in Babylon and in Egypt, they had these creation stories that they had a, that told, you know, answers to their questions or gave them kind of their identity. And a lot of them also, water is a huge theme, which makes sense because if the Israelites are feeling this tension about how the water is chaotic and they don't know how to kind of harness it or what to do with it, the other nations around them were probably feeling a very similar thing. And so we see that um, in the ancient Egyptian creation story, uh, the water and the sun have big roles. Um, there's many variations on this story depending on like where in Egypt you're looking, uh, but a lot of them have to do with water and kind of creation emerging out of the water or being separated from the water. Uh, there's a lot of other similarities um, between some of these creation stories as well, but I won't kind of get into all of them. Um, and I think when we, we look at that and we're like, okay, so that, that in one sense that helps, right? It helps to understand the, this, these were the big questions that lots of people in this area were asking. Great, that's helpful. But now you've almost raised another question for me, right? Because if the Bible's creation story is similar to these other creation stories, does that create a problem for me? Does it, is it a problem that the Bible story isn't as unique as maybe I thought it was? Um, or maybe even asking the questions, did Genesis just borrow from all these other creation narratives that were kind of around at the same time? Um, and if it's not unique, then what does that mean? Is that a bad thing? Is that a problem? And again, this Genesis scholar, John Walton, he talks about the difference between embeddedness and indebtedness. <laughs> So embeddedness, meaning that the Israelites lived in a time and place, right? They weren't just like these fictional people or the, they didn't just live in this own different world that we can't understand. They lived in a time and a place. They had neighbors. They had uh, culture around them. And they had all of these things that in order for God to communicate with them, he had to contextualize to what they knew and what they said, right? Because can you imagine if God showed up or if the story of Genesis was like, yeah, and you know, God created photons instead of God created light or like all of these scientific things, they'd be like, what? I don't know what any of that means and it wouldn't be helpful at all. So if God wanted to communicate with them, this story had to be contextualized to what they were experiencing and what they knew. And so because of that, it's going to feel similar to other nations around them because it's a similar context. So I don't think it's a question of like, it's not as black and white as like, oh, is the Bible completely unique or does it just like take from all these other cultures? It has more to do with the fact that it was in a, they were all in a similar culture. And so there's going to be similarities between how they thought, and for God to communicate with them, he had to kind of play ball with what they knew and what they had experienced. So if you were to ask, like, is the Bible unique or is it just borrowing from other things? I would say, well, it's not quite as straightforward as that. It's actually a little bit of both. It does draw on culture, but it is unique in its own way, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. So as we continue through the, uh, the Genesis story, I'm going to summarize a little bit because there's a lot of things that get created and it kind of goes on for a while. So 
we get vegetation, we get the greater light, which is the sun, we get the lesser light, which is the moon, sky, animals, land animals, sea animals, and it's all this like action of separating, distinguishing, ordering, naming. It's all a part of this, again, ordering it into a system so that the Israelites can understand what it means to have all these things be a part of their world. And you continue to see this theme of God bringing order out of the chaos that they felt. We're going to jump to verse 27. I know I'm going through this fast, but there's a lot. Like I said, there's just so much in the creation story. You could talk about it for days and days. So I'm going to jump to verse 27, uh, and it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures, creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. So we get this idea that, uh, again, a, an idea that is common in Christianity, that's one of those basic building blocks, that God created humans and in his own image. And again, want to acknowledge that this isn't exactly a new idea in their culture. Um, in Mesopotamia, the, kind of the surrounding area, it was common to think that the king was made in the image of God. It was sort of this thing that made the king like extra special or set apart, right? Uh, and so it was something that they would have been able to like grab onto this idea. But there's a twist, right? It's not that there's a king that's made in God's image. It's actually that every one of us is made in God's image. It's instead of it just being very individualistic thing, top down, uh, this is a, a cultural thing where everybody who believes in Yahweh is created in his image. They're all given this calling and this privilege to steward the earth and rule over it. So it's not just one king, but it's a kingdom of people who are called to steward and to rule over the earth. And this is a pretty big change from a lot of the other creation stories that you might hear from other nations in that time period. Uh, in particular, in the Babylonian creation story, humans are created basically as lesser beings to the gods to do their grunt work. So in the story, they're created pretty much as like slave workers to be the irrigation diggers. Right? So to help create you know, ways that they can use the water and to kind of steward the earth, but they're created just as these lesser beings that are basically slaves. But in the creation story, God says, no, you aren't just slaves. You're not just created to be worker bees that just kind of go around and do things for the king who's made in the image of God. But you, individually, everyone is made in the image of God. You are a group of people who are made in the image of God and given this unique calling and privilege. So it's just one example of the ways that you see that the creation story is embedded in the cultural context that it's in, and yet it's also a polemic against it. It also says, hey, that's not, that's not how we believe things were created, especially people. And we're going to stand against that. And, and our God says that we are made in him, his image, and that we have been given a unique calling in our uh, desire to follow him. Okay, and then lastly, as we look at sort of this last section of Genesis 1, um, it says, 
in verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, and on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So quick aside to another question that I just want to kind of get out of the way quick. Why, if you read through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you'll notice that there are some differences in the order that God creates. And for some people, that's really confusing. And it's like, hey, how can it be true if one chapter says one thing and the other chapter says something totally different? I just want to say, in a lot of ways, they're they're the same story, but just from a different perspective. Uh, One way you can look at it is that chapter one is all about kind of ordering the cosmos, again, bringing order out of the chaos in everything around them. So it's this cosmic identity. And then chapter two can be looked at as like ordering the terrestrial. So kind of bringing order to uh, human identity and kind of giving that in a story. And one big clue of, as to why this shouldn't be a stumbling block for us is that it wasn't a stumbling block for the people, other people in the scripture. So if you read through other parts of the Old Testament, uh, the prophets will draw on both creation stories sometimes when they're talking and you know, sharing with the people of Israel. And they draw on both like interchangeably, right? For them, it's not a problem that they were different. It's just two different perspectives on the same story. And so I think if it's not a problem for the Israelites and if it's not a problem for the other people in Scripture, it's a good clue to us that if it's a problem for us, we're asking the wrong question. So I think with this one, it's a good thing to remember. Again, this isn't a science textbook. They weren't trying to give you like a a chronological history of everything that happened. They're trying to tell a story about identity and who God is and who he has made us to be. Okay, and then the other question that often comes up once you wrap this up and you talk about on the seventh day uh, is, did creation literally happen in 24-hour days, right? And I think this is a big one. People have different views on this, and that's okay. Um, And I'm not here to try and persuade you or tell you you have to pick a side. But I know for some people, this is like a real stumbling block for them because they've been told this is what you have to believe. Like, in order to be a Christian, you have to believe that it was literal 24-hour days. And that can be really challenging if you have learned other things uh, from science or from other just ways of thinking about it. And so if you've been told that you have to have that single perspective, I just want to give you a few uh, different ways of looking at it if you're struggling with that. So One of them is that in scripture, the idea of God's rest, right? The seventh day, it talks about how God rested. The idea of his rest carries on. It doesn't have sort of an end, like a 24-hour, he rested for 24 hours and then something else happened, right? It continues on. um, And you see this in Hebrews 4. It says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So it's just an example that shows us this rest, it's more about a, a pattern than it is about like, it's, you have to follow it exactly 24 hours, um, and that's what God did. And this is true in other places in scripture where we kind of get this pattern from, from what God does, but it doesn't exactly map onto our 
like everyday experience because we're not God. Um, the idea of a parent-child relationship, right? If you are a parent, maybe you've started to feel like, wow, yeah, I can start to get a picture of what it must be like for God to be like my father and all of the ways that I'm disobedient or all the ways that I, um, you know, love him or do these different things. And it's helpful, right? Because it gives us a, an example of what it is like, but you're never going to be the parent that God is. <laughs> Let me just free you from that if you feel like you have to live up to that. You're never going to be that because you're not God. And so in the same way, it's, a, it's one of those patterns, right? This idea of God's rest is a pattern for us, but we don't have the same type of rest that he does here and now. And then another thing to think about is just that time is different for God <laughs> than it is for us. Uh, I always go back to this verse for a lot of different reasons, but 2 Peter 3.8, he says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So it's just good to remember that God doesn't operate on the same timetables that we do, uh, which I think we all feel. We all know that. Uh, but it's a good reminder that God is really, really, really patient. <laughs> It's just a different thing for him, like in a way that we can't even comprehend. And I'll acknowledge, in this verse, he's not talking about creation like from Genesis, right? He's not specifically addressing that. He's actually talking about new creation in this verse. So in the context of 2 Peter 3, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about how the end of time hasn't happened yet because God is waiting because there are more people that he wants to see come to know him. And, and they give this ex example that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And this is actually where I'm going to jump into the part about talking about how this all centers around Jesus. Because creation, the creation story we read in Genesis, uh, it's not a one-time thing that happens in Scripture. Like I said earlier, there's all these aspects of creation that get carried through in the rest of Scripture and different themes and threads that continue on. And the big thing is that there is an example of new creation in Scripture, and that all happens through Jesus. Jesus, in our lives, when we choose to follow him as our Savior and our Lord, he brings order out of the chaos of our own hearts and our own lives. It shines a light on our soul uh, and separates out the light from the darkness. So 2 Corinthians 4, 6 uh, says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So here Paul particularly draws on the idea of creation, right? This phrase of bringing light out of darkness and applies it to what happens to us when we choose to follow Jesus and to worship him as our Savior and Lord. And so God's saying the same way that God created in the very beginning and told light to be separate from the dark is how he does in each and every one of us when he makes us, uh, illuminates us to the truth of who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow him. And as we've been talking about, the creation story is all about God bringing order out of chaos. And so we experience that too in new creation. It changes us. It brings out the, uh, the darkness and the things that feel chaotic in our own heart, in our own soul, and in our own lives. And it brings it into order when we choose to follow Jesus. Uh, there's an idea that the uh, African bishop Augustine would say, he talks about like ordering our loves. 
Uh, and he's kind of just giving an example of like, there's all these things that we want to worship and that we want to love and that we want to like give all of our time and attention to. And when we choose to follow Jesus, he takes those and sort of makes like a priority list. <laughs> he organizes it for us. He takes the chaos of all of our feelings and all of our desires and all of our longings and says, look, all of those are going to be met most fully in me. You might still feel desire or longing for other things, but when you're following me and choosing to put me above everything else and to worship him and follow him, it's going to bring all of those other things into focus and into priority. It's like taking like, you know, you have like a million things in your brain of like, I have to get all of this stuff done today. I have all of these things I need to do and you feel really like stressed out about it. But then when you sit down and say, okay, which things take priority? What do I need to do first? How am I going to get all this done in a day? God does that in our hearts with all of the things that we feel this pull and this longing to, to, uh, to love and to follow and to worship. And he says, look, all of that's going to be met in me and everything else is going to fall in place as you do that. And he has this quote that you've probably heard if you've been around um, Christian circles at all, but he says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And for me personally, I've experienced this, right? I can think back in my life before I really chose to follow Jesus and committed to that, and I had all of these competing desires, right? I had all of these things that I felt restless and I was, I was looking for. I wanted approval from people. I wanted to really feel loved in relationships, and I looked for that in all of the wrong places. <laughs> looked for it in friendships and in uh, romantic relationships and in, you know, trying to be really good at everything I did so people would like me and approve of me and give me that love that I so desired. And when I finally chose to follow Jesus and to commit to him, it sort of put all of those things under an umbrella of following him, knowing that I could get all of those needs met, that my heart could be, feel completely loved and at rest in him, put everything else into focus, and took so much pressure off all those other things. But the good news about new creation is that it doesn't just happen once in your life, right? Maybe as I'm telling the story, you're like, yeah, I experienced that once in my life, um, but like, what do I do now? <laughs> that, that happened once and it was great, and I was on this like spiritual high for a while, but you know, life just keeps coming at me, and I don't know what to do with it from here. And the good news is, is that this happens continually in what we call sanctification. This idea of God making us new happens all the time when we choose to follow him, right? When we feel those chaotic pulls to everything else, I still feel the pull of people-pleasing and trying to find my worth in relationships and all those things that I always used to. It just pops up in other ways. Uh, I have to continually go back to Jesus, and he continues to reorder all of that chaos in my life around him. And this isn't a chore, right? I think sometimes like, sanctification sounds like, oh my gosh, this is going to be hard, <laughs> and like something I don't really want to do. But it's actually really good news, because the world around us is completely chaotic, right? I don't think I have to tell you that. And the world inside of us can also be very chaotic at times. And if you continue to look outside, continue to try to find your rest in all these other places, whether it's through right, reading the news all the time or following celebrities on social media or listening to self-help books or productivity podcasts or whatever it is for you that you're like, if I could just figure this thing out, things would be okay. But we have to continually go back to Jesus and he helps all of the rest of that stuff fall away. Jesus gives us a new origin story. He gives us an identity in him 
that we've been made new, we're new creation, and we get to follow him. And the world around us is still going to feel chaotic at times. I, it's until Jesus comes back to make everything new, we're still going to live in that tension. But when we follow Jesus in the meantime, he has told us himself that he will give us rest and he will give us peace. In Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all, you who, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' way is gentle. It's ordered. It's calm. It involves work and it involves rest. And it has a calling and an identity. We see all of these things in the creation story, right? God creates us in his image. He gives us work and he gives us a calling and an identity and our call to be fruitful and to steward the earth. And he also creates a pattern of work and rest. He created the Sabbath, the day of rest, and that is true for us as well. And I'm just going to say, if you're not currently practicing Sabbath in your life in some way, you are missing out on a huge opportunity to have your life and the chaos of the world and the chaos inside you be ordered by Jesus. And yes, it's not required. You're not going to be like kicked out of church or you know, you're not going to lose your salvation if you don't practice Sabbath. But if you don't, I, I'm like, why aren't you, right? Like this is a, a thing that God has given us. It's a gift that we get to practice and we get to experience that ordered um, nature of things that God has created for us, and it gives us rest. And I, if you are like, I'd love to start doing that, but I have no idea where to start, I'd love to talk more about that. Um, and so I'd have, be happy to talk with you one-on-one. -on -one. I just don't have as much time to walk through. Again, that could be like a whole other sermon. Um, and I, I don't have it figured out, right? Like, I don't practice it perfectly. There have been seasons in my life where I don't, haven't practiced it at all. And I can feel the huge difference it makes in my life when I do choose to practice it. Um, and I think it looks different for everybody. And so you have to kind of figure out what does it look like for me to follow Jesus and to practice Sabbath in my life. But again, we need rest. God created us so that we would have this rest to bring order out of the chaos of the world around us and of the world inside of us. So I really encourage you to start thinking about what that could look like. Um, and if you're interested in learning more, I'd always love to talk more about it. And I want to kind of wrap things up by returning to our vision. Um, we talked, now it's been almost a month ago, uh, Joel and I kind of talked about the vision of our church and what it looks like for us to want to see the world and, and to see St. Paul specifically be made on earth as it is in heaven. And as we live as new creation centered around Jesus, we get to bring that order out into the chaos of the world, right? We get to share the good news of who Jesus is and what he can do uh, in our world, in our, in our city, and in our lives personally. And we get to bring that newness out with us as we go. But it takes continually allowing God to reorder our hearts and our lives in order for us to live that out. And the same God who brought light out of darkness, order out of chaos and creation, he can and will do the same thing in your own life if you let him. If you choose to follow him, if you choose to surrender everything else and be willing to worship him above all else, uh, he'll continue to bring that order into our lives as we follow him as Savior and Lord. So I'm going to pray, and then we will take some questions. 
Father, we thank you uh, for the ways that you bring order and rest into our lives in a world that feels chaotic and in a time that feels um, like there, you know, we're relearning rhythms, we're relearning how to rest, how to re-enter into um, work in person and social life in person. We just ask that you would bring order into the chaos of figuring out what that looks like for us. Help us to practice rest, to practice Sabbath, um, in trusting you and knowing that you, as, when we rest, you are still in control. Um, you're always in control. It's never us. It's a good reminder that it's not us. So Lord, we just ask that you would um, help us to, to seek you above everything else, to seek the order and the calm that you bring so we can bring it out with us into the rest of the world uh, and our desire to see um, our city, our world, and everyone in it made new in you as our Savior and King. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. Any questions? Oh boy, do we have questions. Um, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick a few here and we'll see how many we get through. But uh, okay. yeah. Uh, okay, so you talked a lot about rest. Um, why do you think God rested? If he is all powerful, then he should not need to rest. It's a great question. Uh, I mean, as I talked about earlier, I think he kind of sets this pattern for us, right, in which we can learn that we do not need to be constantly productive, that we do not need to constantly work. And so, and one, for even for us personally, I think it helps. It sets this example. Um, but I also think it sort of creates this, as I said, this theme that kind of goes throughout the rest of Scripture is this idea that God's rest is ongoing, right? He is in his rest right now. I know that sounds strange, but you see that kind of play out, and that allows us when we, you know, when we follow Jesus to enter into that rest, and ultimately then when God comes and makes everything new, it's like that rest just continues. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that we won't, like, have work to do in new creation, uh, but it sort of is this, like, I don't know. I don't know if symbolic is the right word, but it sort of creates this idea of, like, what it looks like to follow Jesus and what it will be like uh, when everything is made new, I think. That's my thoughts. I got, you know, this is just my, <laughs> my response, not my, my specific answer necessarily, but yeah. Okay, so maybe building off that one, um, is there anything in Genesis that should be interpreted, and this is the specific word they used as allegorical? Mm. Um, and then a follow-up question to that um, would that change how we look at original sin? And maybe, you know, maybe you want to punt on that. You know, that would require a longer answer. But uh, yeah, there's a question for you. So specifically about like Adam and Eve sinning, yeah, kind of. Yeah, original sin. I assume they mean just the idea that like yeah. Adam and Eve sinned, but now we are all sinful people as a result. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and the allegorical question is a. I think a big one that a lot of people struggle with is like, okay, if this, like we talked about, if this story isn't, you know, supposed to tell me exactly how everything happened, then like, what do I do with that? <laughs> like, how much of this do I take, like, you know, liter literally um, and like take it as explanation of how things happened? Um, and it's one that I kind of wrestle with sometimes. And even as I prepared for this, I went down a very long rabbit hole about um, whether Adam and Eve were meant to be taken as like 
people that really truly lived or meant to be taken more as like um, examples in this story that kind of explains creation to us. Um, and so, yeah, I think there are implications if Adam and Eve aren't real. I think it's okay to, to if, if you land in a place where you're like, yeah, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm meant to read that as real, actual people who lived. I think that's okay. Uh, but there are certain things that you have to come back to to be able to say like, but I still believe this, right? Like, I still believe God created people in his image, and I still believe uh, that sin entered the world through them and that that carries on through the rest of it. How I make sense of all of that, <laughs> um, I, like I said, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole, and there's a, a guy who's been writing about this particular topic and has kind of a new viewpoint on it. I might be getting off topic of what the question was, but this was so interesting to me, so I'm going to share it. Um, this guy, his name's Joshua Swamidas, and he talks, he's like a scientist and also now kind of a biblical scholar, and he talks about the difference of the idea of uh, looking at Adam and Eve or looking at kind of the story, geneal, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, genealogically or genetically, so I think a lot of times we're like, we want to know, like, did we all really descend from Adam and Eve genetically? Like, did that actually happen? And it, the answer is, like, there's no point in science where it shows everybody came from these, from two specific people. And so you're like, okay, well, what do I do with that? And this guy talks about the difference of looking at it genetically. He's like, genetically is actually not even the most helpful way to look at, like, ancestry, because, and this is blows my mind because I don't understand all of it, but it's basically within a few hundred years, the majority of your ancestors gave you zero DNA. So like if you think about it, you get half your DNA from your mom, half your DNA from your dad, and then that just kind of like continues to, you know, drop down like a fourth from this person, a fourth from this person, eighth and eighth. And he said like within a hundred years, most of your ancestors, you have no, none of the same DNA as them. And so that kind of gives us a sense of like, maybe that's not the best way to look back and see, did we all come from these specific people? So he looks at it more genealogically. Um, and some of the things he thinks or talks about is that like, we don't, we're told what happens within the garden. We're told what happens within what God is creating. We don't know what happens outside of the garden or we're not told, right? There's nothing in scripture that tells us specifically what happens there. And if there were people outside of the garden that, you know, maybe came through evolution or through different things, like, and evolved into human-like forms, and eventually the people who were created in the garden ended up, like, being with people who are outside of the garden, he says it would only take about 4,000 years for Adam and Eve to be, like, genealogically the ancestors of everybody. And obviously, they wouldn't be the only ancestors of everybody. There would be other people. But the Bible doesn't say, you know, like, they have to be the, the ancestors. Adam and Eve were everybody's only ancestors. And so that's his way of thinking about it. I had never heard that before, and I was super fascinated by it. I'm still kind of processing through it, to be honest with you. Um, but that's one way people look at it. So I would just encourage you with that, that, like, there are a lot of people doing some really great work in thinking about this. And so if you're interested, I am happy to send you resources or just kind of get out there and, and read or listen to different things yourself because I think there are a lot of different ways you can look at it. Um, and like I said, I think it can all fit as long as you're willing to still kind of hold to some of those core beliefs of Christianity.
All right. Um, I'll just do one more. Um, a lot of your questions I, that we got, I think you kind of touched on at different points. So maybe we can tackle those in more depth um, in a video this week. But w one last one here. Um, how do we manage feeling inferior when there are claims that are made about the Bible not being able to answer uh, modern scientific questions? I think the questioner is feeling like yeah. it can make us feel like we're you know idiots or we're stupid or our you know the the Bible does not really tell us anything about anything that matters in the world. Um, mm -hmm. How do you manage through that? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think the first part is just like yeah, understanding that the Bible wasn't meant to be a science textbook. <laughs> and maybe when, if you're feeling inferior in a conversation with someone, they might not realize that, right? Like they may think that the Bible is meant to give those answers. So to even be able to talk with them about like, you know, this isn't really the purpose of it. This isn't really why they wanted this story. Even the people who originally received this didn't, weren't asking these questions. And so that's not what it's about. Um, and I think sometimes having that conversation, I mean, it can be eye-opening, right? So if, if the person you're talking with doesn't realize that something good. Just to make sure you're all on the same page as you're having those conversations. Um, and then I think the question of like, well, why, you know, why doesn't he answer the questions that I'm asking now? And I think it is frustrating, <laughs> I'll be honest, right? Like there's so many things about life that I'm like, why doesn't the Bible say anything about that, right? Like, um, I, you know, there's a lot about technology that we're dealing with that we don't really know how to handle, right? Like, how do we deal with the fact that we have these phones that can do all these things? And it's like, well, scripture doesn't tell us, doesn't have technology, right? So it's not going to answer those questions specifically. Um, and so I think it's just a good reminder that, like, this isn't the only topic that that's true of. And a lot of that is cultural, right? There's so much in our culture that's different from the people who received this book and, and were, the questions they were asking. Um, and so in some ways, like, yeah, I get it. It is frustrating. Uh, but I also think it's like, again, maybe ask yourself, like, why do I want to know the answer to the scientific question so badly um, and how it really, like, impacts your faith? Because um, I don't, yeah, I don't know. The answer is you could have a lot of different things behind that question. Um, and if it's questions about God's character, I think you can still look through Scripture to find those things. It just might not be via the question you are like you have currently in your head um but yeah just kind of thinking through like what is it what do i what do i want out of this question um and is scripture really the place that's going to help me find that answer yeah cool all right. Well, thank you guys. Um, you all have really good questions. I'm just like, I was motiv you motivated me to really dig into some of these things because I was like, I know that people have questions and this is important and the questions matter. So thank you for asking them and thank you for thinking through them with us.